This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Like the Kokako, the saddleback or tieke belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Hello friends, I'm Marvin Hubbard and we're back with Community or Chaos. We're starting the year 2023 with Reflections by Lindsay Fielder Cook on the outcome of COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, to see how work on adapting to and mitigating climate change is going. Lindsay Fielder-Cook was CUNO, Quaker United Nations Office Observer at COP27 in Sham el-Sheikh, Egypt, at the end of the year. The Quaker UN office in New York was established in 1947 after Quakers in the U.S. and U.K., were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. CUNO, Quaker United Nations office, was one of the first NGOs to be recognized by the United Nations. Lindsay Cook has been representing CUNO, the United, Quaker United Nations office at COP conferences since 2013. Lindsay gave an online presentation and answered questions for New Zealand friends, Quakers gathered on the 29th of December, 2022. I am pleased to be able to share Lindsay's reflections on COP22 in Egypt. You can podcast this program by going to or.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. Thank you. It's, it's, it's always a really great pleasure to talk to you all and it's a Christmas tradition for me now. And... Um, I think I want to just start by saying New Zealand friends, spiritual and financial and upholding and connecting has been one of the, the sort of deep strengths of our work here at CUNO on climate change. Since, since my early days, New Zealand friends have been there with us. And in fact, Lindley helped inspire my efforts to go back to graduate work to study climate change. So I'm going to talk for about 15, 20 minutes, as I said, and I'm going to ground what I'm saying on the questions that Gray gave me. United Nations office, there are two offices, Geneva and New York, and I'm in the Geneva office, which is um, primarily funded by Quakers, about two thirds, and most of that comes through British friends traditionally, but not only. We have contributions from yourselves and others around the world, which makes a huge difference to make our, world, our work very Quaker grounded. And um, we have been there in our work um, since just after World War II, and we focus on supporting UN and multilateral processes in peace and justice concerns. So as a background of that, this was my ninth COP, and this talk has been, um, the questions are really focused around what happened at this COP, and our Quaker presence in it. So this is what I'm going to focus on, but I can answer other questions and I can stay after 8.30 if needed. The first question was to ask for a sense of context, um, the development of the COP27 and a broader global development. So I just want to say that this COP27 
in Egypt, coming after the year before in Glasgow, this was a new start COP. So we got the Paris Agreement in 2015. We finalized the rule book or guideline on how to implement the Paris Agreement in Glasgow. And in a sense, this COP was a chance now to start focusing on implementation. In fact, it was called the Implementation COP. It was held in Africa, appreciably Northern Africa. There are challenges in, in that, but the African um, sort of central and Southern African states were very much, I would say, part of the, the voice there. There was a real sense of ownership. And in this COP, focusing on financial, they wanted to focus on financial support, on practical challenges to implementation, particularly, obviously, for developing countries, and some of the poorest are in Africa, and on preparation of the global stock take. And I will explain more about that. That is coming next year. It is part of the Paris Agreement. It's a, it's a part of a, a time to see where we are and where we need to go. But this COP also gave a lot of time in discussing and preparing for it. It was grounded in the African voice, and it was giving a focus on loss and damage in a way that was unprecedented and has been building over the years. And I left this COP less depressed and less exhausted than I normally do, which is an interesting way to explain because a lot of people view this COP as a failure, but most of those people come from developed countries who use that term. So I'm going to talk about achievements and then frustrations. For achievements at this COP, and again, these achievements are primarily priorities for developing countries. There was a commitment to a global adaptation goal. Adaptation has constantly been something that developing countries have had to fight for as a priority alongside mitigation. There was an establishment of a work program on just transitions. And just transition is important because it's about how do we move from those industries that are driving climate change in a way that also supports those working in those spaces? And just transition is what we call a human rights approach. And there are good examples and bad examples of how to transition. The UK in the 1980s would be seen as a bad example of shifting from coal. But there are better examples now. And what was important at this COP is that the language on just transition was grounded in trade union specific language. That was a real fight because certain countries who are oil wealthy, particularly, for example, the Saudis, were trying to use just transition as an excuse to slow the rapid reduction of fossil fuels. But the trade unions support rapid reduction but they support it in a way that's grounded with social protection, et cetera. And that language held through. We also had much more oxygen in the room to talk about implementation challenges like multilateral bank reform. That got the first real push in this COP because the multilateral banks like the World Bank or the IMF, their practices and priorities are hindering action. And there was a very moral and courageous decision to create a funding arrangement for loss and damage. Now, loss and damage, particularly those of you in the Pacific, this is to support those people no matter what happens. Even if we stopped emissions now, they would be most affected. And that was, I say, moral and courageous. It was not expected that it would get to this. In Glasgow, if you told me that by Egypt we would have agreement for a, a funding arrangement, I would have said no way. And part of the way that happened, and I can go more in detail later with questions, is we had a real push um, in civil society support and in faith-based support. And British Quakers, particularly at Glasgow, led the interfaith voice on loss and damage. And the, the awareness and the, the presence of loss and damage was so powerful at Glasgow that when we came into to Sharm el-Sheikh, you just could feel that something had been pushed forward. And it was the European Union that made the step forward as a, developed, as a developed voice and made it possible then to have this. And the political sort of, we have a, we have a paper on it on our website watching a lot of these, these political negotiations. Um, the G77 and plus China held strong. And this all together, I think the EU is a bit surprised, but it opened a crack and it came forward. 
And that was a really courageous, courageous decision. And we had come in with a paper already on how to fund. So, so this is something that for me left me feeling stronger. Um, it's, also a, it's also a reminder never to give up, never to give up. Um, also, I would say that there was um, support on operationalizing the Santiago network. This is, again, loss and damage. And there were, there were strong calls to include human rights and a recognition in their COP decision on the recent recognition of a right to a healthy environment. Now, these are big things in many ways. You wouldn't think it, but language is important. Frustrations. Okay, the frustrations are very clear and very obvious for us. Um, the nationally determined contributions globally are nowhere near what they need to be. The language on fossil fuels, although there was a step forward in Glasgow, it did not move any forward in Sharm el-Sheikh. And that was both a developed and developing country problem. Um, we refuse still to see language, well, we do, countries refuse now to, con to have language that clearly states all fossil fuels rapidly reduce. They, they, they got to coal in Glasgow, but they haven't moved forward on that. Um, the Egyptian presidency was pretty chaotic, and that was a real frustration for many people. And the pre preparation and guidance that a, a COP presidency can give was quite weak there. And that makes a, a difference to, to sort of progress. As I said, the, the commitments on emission reduction are still way off. If we were to continue on the emissions track we are on now, regardless of promises, if we were to continue where we are now, we would see temperature rises of 3.5 Celsius by 2100, which is what we would call um, unimaginable, unimaginable and unmanageable. Um, we are still aiming for a 1.5. It is extraordinarily difficult. It is not impossible. But that language remains important for ambition. There is still that sense of lack of urgency to act. And the wealthy fossil fuel extraction countries, particularly, I would say, in the Gulf, because they're more open, uh, less concerned about public, um, let's say, public, how the public views them. But it's not only those in the Gulf. It's, it's any fossil fuel extraction country. There is a massive push for expensive, inefficient, and not yet proven to scale technologies to maintain fossil fuels, otherwise known as carbon dioxide removal or carbon capture, um, CCS, carbon capture and storage, carbon capture and utilization and storage. These technologies are being pushed, but as I said, they are expensive, inefficient on emissions. It's more efficient to rapidly reduce the fossil fuels and the infrastructure, and nor are they proven to scale that the COP was like a, a sort of show for the latest um, technologies in that way of we can just keep doing what we're doing. And of course, that's a huge concern. But I say it's, it's, it's not just developed or developing countries. It's, it's those really who are, are, are fossil fuel or mining dependent economies and wealthy economies who are pushing this. And just to give an example, although the UK COP presidency um, had a very strong sense of mitigation in Glasgow. Actually, the language that they brought to Glasgow basically ring-fenced, allowed to focus on coal, but didn't mention oil and gas. And we are seeing this now playing out even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So although the UK might say that, that Egypt was not strong enough on language for mitigation, they gave it li licenses for more oil and gas drilling after Glasgow. They had banned onshore wind turbines, and their government called solar panels in fields as paraphernalia. And they have consistently held back on funding for um, what we call energy efficiency in housing. So when you're when you're hearing um, when you're hearing your politicians talk, you need to look at what are the actual policies that they are funding. You need to know if there's a hypocrisy there or not. So I would say that we all need to work hard on our mitigation, and the Paris Agreement says that the developed countries have to be leading on this. Um, and also one of the great sadnesses is, is that the real stronger language on 1.5, the real call from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to peak emissions before 2025 to limit um, warming at 1.5 Celsius did not make it into the final cover decision. So that, that, was, that was what we hear about as the weakness. But bringing back to the reality of that COP, 
being about implementation, it was a chance for developing countries to say, if you want us on board, we need support, we need technology transfer, we need the promised finances, not so much in loans, which is what's really happening, but in grants, in money to our countries and to our people, that they are able to do the policies that they see important in their countries. Private sector finance tends not to actually prioritize what a government needs or a people need. They prioritize what the public, the private sector wants to have. There was a question about the drama, uh, competing forces playing out. Um, the question was, we hear about the continuing, perhaps strengthening fossil fuel rep representation. Um, so yes, that, as I mentioned, was one of, it, it's almost like a, how do you say, like a trade show. Um, but I want to say that I think that's where humanity is right now, because we seem to be in this space where we are not denying what's happening. We can't deny it anymore. The science is so strong. So 10 years ago, we were trying to, to argue with people about climate change actually existing. We don't hear those arguments so much anymore. Climate change is happening. We know why it's happening. We know that it is pressed by, by human activities. But I sense psychologically our, 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 our species is in the sense of um, we know it's bad, but we don't want to change. And that the greenhouse gas uh, drivers, which are human activity pushed, are usually very lucrative activities. They make a few people a lot of money. And so we are in that money and power fight. And we see this playing out everywhere. Um, and I just as background, one of the strongest parts of our work this year, uh, 2022, was with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the, organized, the multilateral organization that brings all the climate science together, and then has the mandate to advise governments on what is happening, why, and options on what they can do. We are one of the most active observers in these negotiations of their summaries. And because of that work, we are much more prepared and able to challenge the narratives that, for example, fossil fuels are okay, we just have to have abated fossil fuels. That means we pump it into the ground, but we don't talk about who pays for storage, what happens in the longer term, et cetera, and what happens when we run out of storage. Um, there was a question on how drama, again, drama was very much there for Lost and Dallas. Um, I think someone, if they could just check the meeting. Um, and I mentioned the European Union is stepping forward. I think the European Union, we don't know all the details. I think they were caught out because they stepped forward, opened a crack for the developed countries, which the U.S. wasn't so keen on. But by me. opening that crack, oh, we've got someone on. Can you mute everyone? Just check you're on mute. Um, and then actually, as I mentioned, the G77 in China held strong so that they really pushed forward for recognition of a funding arrangement. Now, the way you can fund loss and damage is basically a polluters pay approach. Um, Cuno had prepared a paper on this, and we have all these, these frameworks out there. Many have been around for decades. For example, um, the, the taxation of fossil fuel at extraction, the taxation of international aviation, the Tobin financial tax. There are so many ways that we can then channel funds from the wealthiest and the highest emitters to those who are affected. And I think one of the one of the pushes in this year that loss and damage got this was because, because with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and with this massive pressure on people to pay for fossil fuels and then seeing these profits of those who are extracting and massive profits of the extractors and then seeing how we are online for, for massive destruction and loss in life, this, this horror in front of us was hard to avoid, hard for those extractors to avoid. So another question, how are various nations performing, particularly New Zealand's? Um, there are concerns that we are considerably compromised and Australia. Um, we are not at CUNO, we do, don't specialize on specific nation states, NDCs, um, but I will say this to you, voting, voting matters. I'm just going to check who's got their, um, Sue Ennis, can you, could you, um, could you mute, thank you. Um, voting matters, when Australia shifted its government, it made a difference. There is a new negotiating team, or quite a few new negotiating teams, they updated their nationally determined contribution. Um, it does make a difference. Canada, when they switched their government just before the Paris Agreement, made a difference for a stronger Paris Agreement. 
Um, but of course, Australia is very much um, a fossil fuel or mining dependent. And I'm just going to check who's still got their, I think someone, Naomi, can you mute yourself? Thank you. So you have an economy, and this comes down to our economies. Our economies are now so dependent still on the very drivers of these um, ambitions of, 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 of the emissions. Australia still has one of the highest, Ray, if you can also mute. Australia still has one of the highest um, per capita emissions. And for New Zealand, as you know, it's really the agriculture, which is your main. But also I would say for Australia, our understanding is it's mainly the agriculture. But I did want to say that your ambassador, Kay Harrison, has been such a positive voice in the developed country space of pushing forward boundaries and encouraging us to think more about those most affected. The New Zealand embracing of the Pacific Islands concerns has made a real difference of crossing those, those, those binary boundaries of develop developing. So I want to uphold that. Then finally, I had some questions, the role of communities, both at the COP and their local activities and areas, a better understanding how we can be organized and empowered um, I want to say that the COPs are now this conference of party where they make decisions once a year. They're increasingly technical bodies. And the, the mandates when those negotiators come to the COPs are really already made when they get there. So the real work is what happens at home. The real work is the political push and influence before those representatives get to the COP. And if people are out on the streets or writing letters or, or showing their own witness, and pushing for action and talking about their future generations and talking about their children and talking about their government's um, responsibility and accountability to act. That is what is going to help your government to have a stronger NDC or to have more money being presented when they get there. Every 0.1 Celsius counts. Everything that we are doing now is helping define what our children and future generations are going to face. Never listen to someone who says it's too late, because already, of course, temperatures are rising, but the difference between what we could hold it in influence now to a safer temperature rise versus where we're going is unimaginable. I would say holding ourselves as Quakers as witnesses in our own lives is our, always historically our powerful way of also speaking truthfully to others, but also cheerfully, not in shame. I think we need to inspire, not blame. And I would say that nobody is perfect, so don't, don't sit there and criticize yourself for not doing enough. Every day we try, but we're all humans and we're all imperfect and we're all surrounded in a very unsustainable lifestyle if you live in a developed country and less so if you lived in a poorer or less developed country. Um, the IPCC says that 10% of the wealthiest people on earth um, reflect up to 45% of emissions. And then finally, what did we do there? Well, at the COP, um, it was an intense year, as I said, with the climate science, because we were actually, we made 60 interventions in these summaries. We brought together this science into the COP, um, and we were actually invited by negotiators to speak to states. Now, this is the first time in my experience at CUNO that we were asked at such a high-level space to speak at a COP. We spoke to over 60 countries at the Global Stock Take um, facilitated dialogue. So it was bringing together experts. CUNO was brought in as an expert on what they call integrated, um, what was it, holistic and integrated approaches to climate action. And we spoke with IPCC grounding in everything we said. Um, and it was quite extraordinary. And Saudi Arabia made a, a specific comeback attack on us. But that to me was a compliment because we obviously hit the things that they didn't want in their narrative. Um, the other thing is we've been doing quiet diplomacy. We brought together negotiators virtually several weeks before the COP. Um, but we've also, I think the science has been our focus in the last year because the science big report that took seven years to come together has just been coming out. And we prepared a, a paper on loss and damage funding, which is now going out to different um, communities for feedback as a working paper, but we've gathered models of how can you fund this. Um, and we are constantly pushing for human rights-based approaches to climate action, 
because it is the most sustainable, the most um, coherent, the most supported by communities, and therefore the most efficient. Um, and I would say we will continue in this space. The last question was, how do you feel about the UAE, the United Arab Emirates next year? And I would just say less excited. Um, it's really hard to go to a space which is um, so full of many things that you struggle with both politically and then, of course, in their um, economy dependence and the influence that has. Um, but that's the reality we're facing. And we will continue with the support on the IPCC. The, um, their synthesis report is coming out in March. And I think our focus is to constantly show what is being said versus the narrative that's being pushed in order to maintain lucrative activities. I'm going to stop now, but I can also come into Marion's questions, but I just wanted to give a space to everybody. Just wondering, I heard that there were 600 people from um, fossil fuel companies at the COPT, COPT meeting, and how can that be managed? I was quite shocked when I heard that. I mean, how do I know, shouldn't that be controlled? How can that be controlled? Maybe 200 is okay or 100. It's, well, it's an ongoing debate. So there were how many thousands of observers, right? And of those observers, it was calculated, I think, by Cannes International, um, the Climate Action Network, that, as you say, up to 600 had fossil fuel industry connections. So that is the bait. Is it, is it a conflict of interest to say that nobody with a connection to fossil fuels is allowed in a COP? Others would say, well, you, you, can't, you, can't, um, that, that would, you can't say to people they are not allowed to come. And they have to get the fossil fuel industry on board with this. So it, it's an ongoing argument about conf, what is a conflict of interest and where can they be there? But it's also about who are we to say who can't join in a, in a conference, right? So OPEC is there. And if you say OPEC is not allowed to be there, they would say, well, we have to be part of this conversation in order to know how we reduce. So it's, it's, it's a challenge constantly. And it's not, it's not fun to be in a room where you've got these people. That's why the, this climate science for us is, is so critical. To quote the IPCC, for example, when Saudi Arabia is saying, we carbon capture storage is the way forward we can just abate our fossil fuels and we're fine we then quote what is being said and they can't argue against that because it's ipcc it's 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 the science but it's like you know if you have um, a sexual abuse case you're constantly fighting a narrative of someone else's reality and you have to keep to the focus of what you know is the truth there because they're constantly trying to shift the blame it's hard, Wilma. It's hard. It's, it's a hard space. Lindsay, particularly I was thinking about your, the paper you presented at the, um, the global stock, um, stock take, um, at preparatory comments, I suppose, and I think they will give a hopeful, a helpful focus. Um, also for those comments on civil society and the positive role that it's playing in the encouragement. Yes, the other thing that I want to um, just raise was how to get military emissions included in the um, um, in, in the nationally determined contributions. Is there any New Zealand might give leadership here? Is any other country moving on this? Okay, thank you. Um, excellent question on military emissions. I will speak more generally and then toward New Zealand specifically. Military emissions are not required in a nationally determined contribution. So a state can say, well, it's, it's not required for me to put that in. It's recommended, for example. It's voluntary. But this is now, when well, I talked about more oxygen now to focus on issues, military emissions is now getting much more focused than it was before. Um, it came up in the IPCC meeting in Geneva when we were there, where one of the climate, the the the, the the, the scientist, the co-chair who does the what they call the greenhouse gas inventories, mentioned this difficulty of getting military emissions calculations. And we picked up on that immediately and did a public statement 
on how not having sufficient recording of military emissions could jeopardize the climate science modeling, because if we don't know, if we don't include military emissions, our modeling could be way off. So we now have a hook in the IPCC to keep pushing for this. In the wider kind of climate negotiations for the nationally determined contributions, this is now coming into the fore. There was a very good side event in this COP27, which um, part of the report coming in that for this side event was funded by Quakers. And the, 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 um, the, the sort of calculations that they are saying is that military emissions make up for approximately 5% of all global emissions. But because very few states are actually reporting these emissions, then we, are, we, are, we could be way off and we need to report them. But here's some background red flags for you. When you're engaging on military missions, as Quakers, we need to constantly say that this is not about greening our military. This is not about killing people in a more renewable energy way. And, and that, that's, that's something we constantly need to think about when we're, when we're engaging on military missions. We want them reported because they are significant in their part of the whole makeup, because they, um, they also will reflect how um, the money that we are spending on our military is not only destroying people's lives, but it's also threatening our stability and our safety because it's allowing for the destruction of a planet on which we need um, to healthily survive. So there are ways of, of really focusing on this. For getting, your, um, for getting New Zealand to include it, I would just keep saying we need to include our military emissions to have, um, and I can send links on the latest calculations, to have a clarity on what we're up against and to have leadership. Now, some countries have included their military emissions, and I believe the UK did, but I, am, I can send you links on who actually follows this. But there are countries like the US whose military emissions are, are much higher than a whole group of countries put together. I just wanted to add that in, in, in that whole discussion, what we also really focus on is military spending. So you can talk about military emissions, but we would shift it also to saying we are spending billions and hundreds and, you know, the highest, the highest global um, amount on military spending re ever recorded this year. <laughs> While our planet, we are destroying our ability to live on. And why are we putting money into killing people when we could be putting money into actually transforming the very activities that are destroying not only the climate, but also biodiversity, soil, water, you name it. And that's a powerful argument. Adrian. Uh, thanks, Lindsay, for the work that you and Quaker United Nations Office is doing around this. The loss and damage and the work of the European banking system is going to bring lots of money into the climate um, action, particularly for uh, countries in the global south. And we heard Pakistan being very critical of the global north not coming up with enough money. But within Pakistan, there are concerns that there might be corruption of that money. How can we be sure that there is transparency and accountability in the global south so when those transfers happen that they go for the purposes intended? How, what mechanisms the European banking system is developing them, but I, I wonder what, whether they're talking about it at the UN. Um, I think the, the, the concern about corruption is always everywhere and not just a developing country concern. You know, when you shift money, it's always going to be something that we have to, um, as much as one can control, be careful. Um, for loss and damage, if you're trying to get money to those most affected, my hope is that that loss and damage specific funding, when they can start channeling it, would go to organizations that work directly with people. So, for example, if you've got communities wiped out in, you know, an area, say, in the Philippines, that you've got, for example, the, the IFRC, International Federation of the Red Cross, 
that has been given funds to go in and help or distribute cash grants to people. For me, that would be my personal opinion, having worked in humanitarian situations. Money for humanitarian work is so strangled and increasingly so. So, so I would see using those, the channels of those organizations that we know have a good track record of getting money to those most affected, but also small grants to, to families who, who then to help them rebuild, to get this, the local communities going. There is the, 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 the Green Climate Fund, where they channel money for mitigation and adaptation product, projects, and that has more controls. And it may be that loss and damage is done that way. But I think the real concern, as you say, is if it goes to a government, how do you ensure that that money gets to the people? And that is, that is one of the things that they're always going to be fighting on. But I don't want, what we see is it's often used as an excuse not to fund. So we have to find that balance. Um, and I think that, that would be my, my main response to you right now on that, that side. I'd like to ask a question. In the midst of the negotiations, where or, or addressing all these problems, expenses, the supervision, uh, the monitoring of it, and all that sort of thing, what really it keeps the sense of urgency that we are actually trying to survive and ensure our survival? How can that keep get that? Really presented in during the negotiation. To answer your question, Gray, what keeps urgency going are two things. One is the voice of the most affected now. So the group of small island states known as EOSIS, um, which has a very strong voice from the Pacific, but also the Caribbean. I would say that the Caribbean negotiators culturally are more aggressive. I say aggressive, I mean in a, in a positive way. They are more. The Pacific, I think, culturally tend to be more um, sort of calmer and less, uh, less in your face. But the Caribbeans, between the two of them, they have this really remarkable presence. Um, and, and the small island states in Aosis are the, the, the real push for ambition alongside the least developed, but I would say the island states because they're living it in a way that, um, that is, is, is more empowered because small island states are not necessarily poor either. And the least developed are often dealing with so much hardship already in addition to what we're talking about with climate change. The other thing that keeps the urgency in that room would be the climate science. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which I believe was established in 1988, it got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1997 with Al Gore. Without that, that input, so the, by mandate, they have to, um, what is it, not adopt, they have to, um, to to accept the reports of the IPCC. And once those, once those, that's why we're in these negotiations, because they only negotiate a summary. And you have to make sure that those summaries um, reflect, as, reflect the main body of science, even though there are going to be some political pushes to weaken it. That's why we're in those spaces. The IPCC is, the, is really the voice of nature in those climate negotiations. And without that climate science in that room, the negotiations would really be about economics and about power and money. But the science on the table is constantly saying, you can argue over your, keeping your coal stations or your fossil fuel extractions, but this is where we're going and this is what's going to happen to your country. And those are the conversations I have with my Saudi colleagues. You know, you're pushing for this, but your country is on the line of one of the most vulnerable and you won't be able to live there if we carry on at this rate. You know, and those conversations need to be held constantly. Also, civil society in that room. And, and that was the hard thing of Egypt. Civil society was so restricted in what it could actually do. We could get there if you had the money, but 
but you couldn't be out on the streets. Glasgow was amazing. Glasgow, we, civil society was just everywhere. And the difference that made to pushing something like loss and damage into the negotiation stronger was really powerful. So I would say that's all the urgency and the urgency of, of what's happening on the streets in your countries now. You know, again, I, I don't mean to be too hard on the United Kingdom, but it's, it's my, my husband's home. It's where I spent a lot of my adult life, and it's also um, very close, and it was the presidency. The prison sentences that they are passing for people who are environmental protesters is, is just, it's just shameful. You know, putting people in prison for having a sign near an oil refinery, right? It's this reaction that you realize you're close to the core of the problem and you're touching those nerves and you've got to keep touching those nerves because when people in countries are speaking out more and more, and again, speaking about the rate we're going is going to destroy our children's ability to live on this earth. And you have a responsibility and accountability to protect us, but, but to protect us by really transforming healthily what we do not by putting something up in the sky or shoving everything into the ground and pretending we can just carry on. Um, so, so, so that's the urgency. And I feel it ever stronger. But I also felt that the, this COP was a kind of reality check that you want us to do this. You need to also support us. And just to go back to Pakistan, Adrian, debt relief was coming up more in ways that is so needed. We are in the face of a sovereign debt crisis globally that has been enhanced by COVID. Pakistan had 44 billion, apparently, approximately worth of damage with the floods, but had to pay 18 billion in repayments to debt that year. So without, without serious engagement on debt relief or shifting debts, however, into say funding for climate action or ways that we can engage on this, Countries are, are cripples in, in doing what they're supposed to be doing because they're also so held down by other things. And I think those conversations are getting more out into the open. Answer about COP15 and COP27. Okay, you've muted, Gray. I, I, I Okay. Adrian, um, yes, and I'm sure others can, can answer this well. Um, QNO is a small organization and we right. can't cover everything but the cop 15 was the was was the biodiversity okay so you have um um the convention on biological diversity the the cbd which was the convention that was initiated after rio in 1992 94 you have um, the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity, you have the UNFCCC, which was the Framework Convention on Climate Change, where you have the climate change negotiations, and you have the UN Convention on to Combat Desertification, the UNCCD, which is here in Bonn, which Quakers actually were quite involved in getting that convention together through Kino New York, another piece of history. Those three conventions continue. Climate change gets the biggest kind of sexy profile these days. It didn't used to, but it does now, which is something to recognize how it makes a difference, engaging, learning, being informed. But, but biological diversity, if you were to look at the planetary processes, if you were to look at the, 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 our, our species, our water, our, our soil, our climate, everything, Species extinction rates are the highest, they're off the scale. Um, they are the greatest, the, greatest, um, the, the greatest urgency right now in terms of how our activities are affecting on the earth right now, not just in our climate. Climate change is happening, we know where it's going, but the actual, if you look today, it's the species extinction rate that is the, 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 the most extreme that we're facing right now. The, the reasons that those are being, the, the, the root causes of those species extinction issues are very similar to the root causes of climate change. That's, that's, the, that's if you want to say it's a hope, that the transformations of those root causes that are driving climate change are also driving species extinction. And the COP15 was, again, the conference of parties 
the, the decision-making space for, for the Convention on Biological Diversity. And they had to bring together an agreement which um, was seen as kind of uh, historic in the way that the Paris Agreement was. We don't work on it, so it's harder for us to give you an assessment of that. But Quaker Earth Care Witness has been very involved and had David Miller there, who is, I think, in, I think he's now in his 80s, um, non-stoppable and was the um, eco, um, the Kabarak, he was right behind in the Kabarak call for um, eco-justice, was a piece in eco-justice. Um, extraordinary and he was there and we were supporting him on that and he was very much about human rights and ensuring ecosystem uh, regeneration as as a way to support nature rather than to use that as a kind of excuse to keep pumping our emissions and then we call it nature-based solutions so there's all sorts of interconnected um, issues um, but i would say that one of the pushes adrian is to continue to keep pushing the connections so that climate and biodiversity and oceans are not silos because they are all interconnected and i think that that message is coming more now yeah. i've got a question about the plant-based treaty and the plant-based movement how visible was the um, that in terms of trying to shift the biodiversity and to take land out of pasture and put it back into rewilding and things. I see a lot about it on Twitter, but I'm not sure how visible it was at COP. Sorry, could you, what do you mean by the plant-based treaty? Um, there's a big movement and a big petition for getting governments to shift and put emphasis onto reducing animal food and increasing vegan food, if you like, plant-based food. And there's, I mean, I know there's a global petition. Um, yeah, wonderful question. So. Um, our diets, and this is IPCC, our diets are related to about one-fifth of emissions. In IPCC negotiations, negotiators or states will push down any mention of meat and dairy, specific meat and dairy. However, it's all in the science, and there are charts of which diets are the most climate-friendly. Um, but livestock is important for small-scale farming, for sustainable farming. There's, there's an interconnection. So, for example, Tanzania will say, we can't just say no meat because our, our farmers rely on the manure of having a few cows to then help with their... So you have this constant balance of industrial agriculture and the more sort of unsustainable meat and dairy-based diets are a huge part of the problem. They are not the only problem, but they are an easy thing for us as human beings to actually try to engage on. Um, so when we talk about plant-based, yes, but it's, it's also how we do our agriculture. So the mono, you, you talk about agroecological or agroecology as approaches to farming. All of that is critical. But I just want to bring up a tension that, that we engage in, that David engaged in in Montreal. There is a lot of emphasis increasing on what they call nature-based solutions, so rewilding, but then using that as a kind of carbon offset <clears throat> to offset emissions. Say, I'll keep doing my, my coal plant because I'm paying some forest in the Amazon to maintain, right? This is a real concern. So when we talk about plant-based, we talk about ecosystem restoring and regeneration, that is critical as part of supporting and ensuring that nature isn't collapsing because we are dealing with environmental collapse, but not to counter emissions that we just want to carry on doing. And I, I can't stress that more. So there is in the negotiation space, 
ecosystem regeneration or restoration is important. Plant-based diet is critical. You don't have to become a vegan if you don't want to, but maybe do meat very rarely. Just, just reduce as much as you can and buy locally. All that makes a difference and support farmers who are doing more, more sort of what we call multi-cropping and and, and 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 you know when you look at our whole system in the developed countries of food it is so profoundly part of the problem and profoundly part of our species extinction there are more pigs in spain than there are human beings um but sorry i could go on about this but if you hear about nature-based solutions ask the question is this because you don't want to re rapidly reduce your fossil fuels and rapidly reduce your industrial agriculture are you using this to counter it as a way to counter your net zero? Those are the questions we need to ask and be very aware of so that we are reducing at source and we are not offsetting because that's not going to get us to a safer temperature rise. I just had one question, Marion, I wanted to pick up on the indigenous communities. Um, there was a massive indigenous, well, massive, there were over 200 indigenous um, um, people from around the world in, in Egypt, which which is extraordinary. They're getting there's more and more money supporting indigenous voices. They are critical in these spaces. They are really a sense of nature, and that they are also talking about how we do it well and how we do it in 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 conjunction and respecting um, respecting nature. And and so the indigenous people's voice is critical. We had a side event at the COP27 with the head of the Sami Council, um, with, well, she, no, the head of the Inuit Circumpolar came as a speaker, and then one of the top Sami Council, plus someone from the Barron Straits who's, who's fighting against geoengineering. Um, we had a top climate scientist voice on, on the polar, so the, both the, the, the two polar and the Himalayas, the third pole, talking about the changes there and talking about how do we do this in a way that is transformative and not based on geoengineering quick fixes, which are actually um, in the long term would destroy um, what we have. So it was a very strong indigenous people's voice on how do we do this well and healthily. And I just wanted to share that. It's, it's, um, we, we accredit indigenous peoples where we can when we have um, extra sort of badges. For us, it's been an ongoing support in our period there at the COPS. Thank you all. Well, thanks for listening, friends, to these reflections by Lindsay on the important issues of COP27. You can podcast this program by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to on to Community or Chaos. Hopefully the next COP will be fruitful. The location in Dubai, an oil-producing state, gives one pause, but we can only work for the best and make sure our voices are heard. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.